0: Everyone and welcome to the Stroke Special Interest Group podcast. Today we'll be discussing an article called Gluteus Maximus Muscle Activation Characteristics During Chair Rise in Adults with Chronic Stroke with one of its authors, Dr. Michelle Sauteau. We will delve into why a sit to stand is an important clinical indicator for stroke, the findings of this article, and what we can do as clinicians to translate these findings into our practice. Michelle Saltel is an assistant professor at Tufts University for their hybrid doctor of physical therapy program in Phoenix, Arizona. She is a board certified clinical specialist in neurologic physical therapy through the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialists and a Power Moves certified therapist for Parkinson's disease. She is also the vice chair for the Academy of Neurological Physical Therapy Stroke Special Interest Group. Dr. Sautel has treated neurologically-involved clients throughout all levels of care, including acute care, long-term acute care, skilled nursing, home health, and outpatient, with the majority of her experience within the inpatient subacute rehab setting. Most of her time has been spent with adults post-stroke, which is her passion. Dr. Sautel currently focuses on teaching within the movement science and neuromuscular sequences at Tufts University. With the addition of a small pro bono demonstration work with clients. Dr. Sawtell's research is focused on biomechanical assessment of functional activities in individuals with neurologic disorders. She is skilled with surface EMG, kinetic, and kinematic data acquisition and analysis for research and teaching purposes. She is presented at multiple conferences within the USA and was an invited presenter for the first post-conflict rehabilitation virtual symposium in affiliation with therapists for Armenia. Thank you so much for taking this time to speak with us today, doctor. We really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited. So let's get into it. We're going to start
0: with a bit of background. So can you remind us of the phases and kinetics of chair rise?
1: Absolutely. So it's funny because there really aren't formally accepted phase nomenclature for the chair rise, kind of like there are for gate, for example, you know, we're all kind of used to the different nomenclature for ranchulos Amigos and such. In fact, some authors in the late 80s kind of described it in terms of kinetics. So just like a forward thrust phase and then an extensor thrust phase. And then people started to kind of integrate kinematics and motion capture, you know, as that started to become more prevalent, then we started to have more phase. Phases. For our article, we chose the Shankman and colleagues description from 1990 because we thought it would be more clinically relevant. It provided not only kinetic types of phases, basically, but it, it kind of integrated kinetics and kinematics into, uh, into everything. So it makes it clinically and research relevant. So uh, the first phase that we used is described as the flexion momentum phase from movement initiation until just before the buttocks lift off of the surface. So it's just that initial type of anterior translation type of movement. The second phase is then the momentum transfer phase where the buttocks lift off of the seat all the way until the point of maximal ankle dorsiflexion range of motion. So this second phase is kind of a critical phase since you have that surface liftoff, which requires momentum and muscle activation from the lower extremities. And so, you know, kinetics wise, we can look at the center of pressure on the feet. And what you'll notice is a posterior displacement toward the heels on that liftoff before they actually get to the extension phase. And uh, this is where, you know, again, with kinetics, this is where your vertical ground reaction force would be. Be the highest because basically you know our center of mass is being transferred from the buttocks to the feet and so we're putting more weight through our legs. The third phase is then the extension phase so pretty much where everything extends from maximal dorsiflexion to then maximal hip extension and standing and here you know it's it's interesting you know the the center of pressure on the feet kind of moves a little bit more anteriorly so that it's just anterior to the intramalleular axis of the feet. The fourth phase would then be maximal hip extension to the cessation of all movement and standing. So we kind of sway a little bit once we stand up and that fourth phase, is a little bit nebulous, I'd say, to try to detect when the motion actually stops, but that's kind of how it's defined. From a movement cycle perspective, like how long does it take to get from, a, on a, you know, from a healthy individual, healthy adult perspective, it takes about 1.2 to 2 seconds to transition through all of those phases and, you know, remain in that static standing position. Can you
0: next explain how electromyographic analysis works and what insights EMG analysis
1: can give? Absolutely. So I I had to take quite a few um, classes with EMG because it's it's kind of a lot, right? So, but essentially, what electromyography does is it measures the neural components of the muscle. So what confuses a lot of people is that it does not measure muscle force output or strength. So a lot of people will see EMG and like, oh, I'm stronger if they see the little you know peaks and everything like that. That's not necessarily the case, and you know, clinicians need to understand when reading research that, you know, it's basically looking at the electrical activity of the muscle only, not the force characteristics. Here, we're looking at the number and the rate of motor unit action potentials within the muscle. So we're looking at the neuro component, which is wonderful, right? (laughs) So we can see from the output of the muscle activation amplitude, and we can see if it differs from one leg to another, for example, and then kind of go in there and normalize that data. So when we say normalizing it, when it comes out, you know, when the data comes out on the computer, it's based on voltage, and it just spits that data out. And it doesn't really mean a lot to us clinically, you know, whether I, you know, give... 0.005 millivolts versus this many millivolts. That doesn't really make sense to us clinically as physical therapists. So what we have to do with EMG is to compare it to Usually people compare it to a maximal voluntary isometric contraction. So for this, you know, you would have the patient try to contract a muscle as forcefully as possible, kind of like just a manual muscle testing, if you will, just make sure that the patient provides maximum force output with the EMG sensors on. So then the computer would spit out a voltage reading from that. Then when we when the patient does the activity, like the sit-to-stand, for example, we can take the voltage output that result from the sit-to-stand activity, you know, on whatever muscle that we're, tra- we're testing Testing. And then we can calculate a percentage ratio. So this way we can say, okay, well, the right gluteus maximus contributed 20% of a maximal contraction, but the glu- the left glutes maybe only contributed 10% or something like that. So that's kind of how it's usually measured. The tricky part was with this study was that, you know, as you know, some participants post-stroke can't isolate muscles, I can't really put them in a manual muscle testing position and and it fires. So we had to, you know, really delve into the literature for electromyography and figure out what would be the best way to normalize and make sense of that data. So we actually had to take it. The integrated EMG is basically like the area underneath a curve, if you will, of all of the peaks and and valleys and such. and uh, And that's how we just took a percentage based off of that. So it's kind of like an average absolute value that we did. It's a little more difficult to wrap our brain around, but that's what we had to do. That makes sense though, Mm
0: with the the stroke population.
1: Which is cool though, because if you think about it, you know, (laughs) the theories of neuroplasticity that we talk about, it was really neat to see it at work. And I had some of my, um, my research assistants were some of my students and I could show them, see, this is why we have to be task specific because it wouldn't fire like half the time in an isolated muscle position, they couldn't isolate it enough to actually show an EMG reading past a certain threshold. Mm-hmm. But when they did the activity, it fired beautifully. I was like, well, see, <laughs> you just that have is, to do awesome. Yeah, really? it was really neat. Sure. I,
0: I sometimes still have a lot of challenge with understanding how functional movement strength is so different than isolated. Movement
1: strength. It is, I know, it is. It's really neat to see it though. What
0: did prior studies show on chair rise in individuals post-stroke?
1: So specific to the chair eyes, there have been a lot of studies that have shown movement cycle duration to be significantly increased post-stroke, which makes sense, right? They, They take a longer time often to stand up. And that was consistent with our study as well. Other studies have kind of mentioned that there was an increased amount of time needed to complete the task, primarily due to the extension phase of rising. So people would then try to subdivide and figure out, okay, which phase is the culprit, right? Which phase is really causing the most trouble for these patients? And we found similar results that the extension phase of rising, it's not necessarily the momentum, because sometimes we think that might be affected, at least in our study and those that I've read, it's not necessarily the momentum transfer, but it's more that extension phase, getting from that squat position all the way up to the standing position that, that took longer. So it kind of helps us recognize some clinical things that we could do as well. But, uh, but there were also studies, EMG studies, specifically looking at temporal sequencing deficits. A lot of studies did the lower shank muscles, so anterior tib, soleus and stuff like that. And they found there was a significant delayed contraction of the anterior tip on the paretic extremity, but an earlier activation of the soleus. So kind of similar what we were doing up the chain, I guess, in the more proximal muscles. But you know, they've shown a lot of temporal sequencing deficits of quadriceps and hamstrings as well. So not quite as many studies pertaining to the glute max with regard to EMG amplitude or interlimb sequencing. So that's why we decided to kind of focus on the glutes a little more. Why
0: did you choose to focus on this question for this study?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny, you know, after getting in there and seeing that it wasn't really um, emphasized, it, it was way before then, you know, I'm sure you've had the same thing happen when you treat individuals. What I started to notice was that once we got them up, they're fairly well, you know, so, some of them, right? So they were able to ambulate and everything was going well. And then they would go home and sit in a chair and and not be able to get out of that chair because they couldn't stand up. And so it became interesting to me to think, okay, well, why? Why can't they stand up? Uh, you know, uh, they can walk, but they can't stand up. So So that's where it just really started to to kind of resonate. And then when I looked in the literature and I saw, you know, the glute max is one of the largest, if not the largest muscle in the body. And I'm like, why are there no more studies (laughs) that are looking at this? Mm -hmm. It's not the main prime mover. I wouldn't say of the sit to stand task. That's more the quads, but, but it definitely functions as a prime mover, especially in the extension phase. So
0: what are the key findings of your study that you want listeners to know?
1: We always see the paretic side as the weak side post-stroke, you know, a lot of the time. And it most certainly is. But I think this study points out that there are deficits bilaterally after a stroke, even years Mm -hmm. down the road compared to healthy individuals. And it's been shown in research to a large extent. So we're trying to obviously change our verbiage if we haven't already about, you know, the less involved and the more involved instead of the weaker Mm -hmm. side and the, you know, the normal side or whatever. I think focusing on both legs is still pretty critical because there are muscle activation deficits on both of them compared to healthy adults, right? I don't, I can't really speak again to strength. Because this is mainly for muscle activation, though previous research has also shown that they're weak too. So I I just think that we need to take home the fact that it's not just strength deficits post-stroke. There's there's, those muscle activation. It's the neural component that tends to be a problem. And, and also it's not just an amplitude perspective, right? We have to work on timing. So if, you know, if one, Mm -hmm. if your timing is off, it's just going to throw the whole, the whole activity off.
0: You found delays in both magnitude and onset, which you just touched upon. Can you explain what both of those measures mean? You did not find onset delays in other muscles. Why do you think these were specific to the gluteus maximus?
1: For the first question here, you know, magnitude of EMG activation is essentially like the amplitude of the curve or the amount of muscle activity that's produced during that task.
0: Not necessarily strength though, just to clarify. Correct.
1: Just the amount of firing. Exactly. How many motor units essentially. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing here was that the magnitude on both of the limbs for the quads, hamstrings, and glutes were decreased compared to healthy subjects. So this is a bilateral issue. Yeah. Which I was like, wow, that's, that's really interesting that many, you know, Mm -hmm. months post. And then another interesting result there was that there wasn't an intralimb magnitude difference. So that being said, the paretic and the non-paretic limbs were not significantly different in terms of amount of activation for the hamstrings or the glutes. So they were similar, which is mm-hmm. I was not expecting that at all. I was like, mm-hmm. oh man, hands down, right? Yeah. <laughs> Poretic would be less, but it's not. Um, But they were very different for the quads, right? So you had a significant difference for um, muscle activation of the quadriceps, the vastus lateralis specifically. So, you know, so it was interesting because there might be some kind of a preferential decrease in the magnitude or that peak activation, if you will, of the Mm -hmm. quads for some reason. And then onset of activation. It's more related to, again, that temporal aspect of activity. So how quickly did the muscle fire compared to either healthy adults or between legs? So, again, we talked about if one of the the muscles, like the glute max, lags behind, then the activity would be affected because other muscles might need to kick in in order to support, you know, um, and, and make the activity successful. So that's kind of what magnitude and onset mean together. In answer to the other question, why do I think they were specific to the glute max? I don't know, to be honest. I mean, it could have something to do with the anatomy of the glute max and how large it is maybe in comparison to the quads Mm -hmm. and hamstrings, maybe because, you know, the glute max is more of a secondary prime mover, you know, compared to the quadriceps that, you know, I, that just fire. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. I think that's something where we need a little bit more research on. Yeah, that is interesting. I
0: guess what you said about the the size of the muscle, I can imagine from what we know about what happens after a stroke, maybe it takes longer for the action potentials to... Yeah, to summate.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. It would be interesting. I think we would have to kind of dive into the muscle physiology Mm -hmm. a little to figure that out, which I'm not skilled with.
0: (laughs) I'm sure somebody is and I hope they're listening. Exactly. So based on these findings of glute activation post-stroke compared to healthy, the healthy population, what do you think PT should focus on to rehabilitate gluteus maximus?
1: I think there's a good amount of evidence in just conducting the study, first of all, that task-specific training is needed. Mm-hmm. So when you say to rehab the glute max, it's hard. I, I can't look at it that way because you're kind of isolating that muscle. When you look at the activity in general, you should just be incorporating more into the activities that fire all of those muscles, you know, and work to, that's how we can work on, you know, hopefully temporal synchronicity and and such. So, you know, that's kind of part of what I think we need to really focus on. And Mm -hmm. I think too, the results of our study, kind of contribute to that high intensity topics that we're seeing to some degree, right? Because we think about it, if we want to really build timing, then we need to maybe do things faster. If you think about it, you're like, well, maybe if I make it faster, then maybe, you know, we can start to see more muscle activation or, or at least, you know, less delayed muscle activation. So I think we need to just get everything, not just the glutes, but everything to fire earlier and quicker. We need to find some mechanisms to do that
0: how much of your findings are unique to the chair rides or would you expect to see across different activities such as walking on inclines and stairs?
1: There have already been studies kind of demonstrating the asymmetrical interlimb firing patterns of the lower extremities during gait. So I'd kind of expect to see similar results with all activities, just depending on how much, you know, the glutes, for example, are utilized within that activity. And just thinking about biomechanics too, it's, Like I have to actually help. I have to help teach more about Arthur kinematics these days in our movement Mm -hmm. science course to the students. It's helpful to see how a simple restriction in a facet joint, for example, can change an entire movement pattern. And so when Mm -hmm. you think about it in terms of hemiparesis, obviously that's way more than just a restricted facet or, you know, Um. or joint articulation. So, you know, so obviously when we have these deficits you know, which we obviously do from the literature, you, we're going to see it in all activities to some degree.
0: Got it. So you would see, you, you would see this muscle activation pattern. Yeah,
1: right? I would think so. I absolutely would. I haven't really delved into the literature quite as much, but you've already seen it in some degree to, uh, with the gate literature.
0: Can you touch on how you feel future studies should build on the data that you were able to collect?
1: One case series in particular by Boyne and colleagues in 2011 um, was a speed-dependent sit-to-stand trial. It was interesting because it showed improvements with speed-dependent sit-to-stand tasks for patients post-stroke, so from a functional perspective. And it's interesting, that's actually what we built our next studies based on, just to kind of look at the muscle activation behind it too. So would
0: this mean in these studies or, and if you were doing it with somebody you're working with, you would cue them to try to do the task more quick?
1: Yep. As fast as possible. That's actually some research that we're currently formatting right now that are related to that velocity dependent type of chair rising.
0: What are you focusing now in your research? I think you just touched upon a little bit, but anything else that you are planning on doing to further investigate these findings? Thank yes, absolutely. Fun.
1: Yeah, so we're formatting. Uh, the first article that we're formatting is related, like I would said, to some, it's very similarly designed, but now we're looking at, the difference in EMG activation between just a natural sit to stand versus a high velocity to see indeed if we, you know, could increase or improve muscle activation amplitude and to see if we had further delays. And so, I mean, I can't, I don't know if I can give the results of it, but it was pretty (laughs) exciting actually. So hopefully that will help guide future treatment interventions. And then the second study is more related to power output and whether power is, is improved if you will with a speed dependent intervention or or just a speed dependent chair rise task. So I think those two would be neat we're formatting them there are they're finished already. Kind of an off topic thing within my research specifically. I'm actually also diving into the nutritional components post stroke and awesome. I know that's completely off the wall. Yeah. But it's a huge passion of mine to think about because if you think about it, you know, obviously we as physical therapists, we do everything that we can to promote practice and proper interventions and, you know, trying to promote recovery if we can, but there's something to be said for an internal environment, right? So yeah. I'm very fascinated about, you know, we build up a lot of inflammation within our bodies. And so does that, you would think that that would inhibit the you know, neural conductivity to some degree. So I'm kind sure. of working on nutritional and trying to merge the nutrition and physical therapy aspects. That's really exciting.
0: I, it made me think about how for high level athletes, there's such a, a focus on nutrition in order for people to use their muscles at such a high level. So it makes sense that if you're trying to recover someone's muscles, that you would want to ensure the environment is best for that.
1: You know, you don't really think about it as often, but I mean I kind of liken it to the analogy of, you know, I'm not going to put orange juice in my car because mm-hmm. eventually it'll stop working, right? Yep. Um, so it needs the right fuel in order for us to have the output that we want physically. So so I think that's a really good collaboration that we could do with our nutrition um, professionals and look at that research.
0: Another thing that I wanted to ask you or at least comment on is how exciting it is that it seems to be there's a big focus on power and velocity of movement. So like, it's reminding me a lot of Parkinson's disease treatments. Do you feel like you're using some of that information that you've gotten when you're treating th- that population with this population? And I know there's a big focus for certain treatment theories to that you can use the same theorems for different diagnoses than just Parkinson's.
1: No, exactly. And I think that's really interesting that you bring that up because, you know, when I went through uh, the PWR, which I think is a really cool intervention set, if you will, I would love to see these similar types of activities, maybe not the exact same, right? Because we're not, you know, it's the physiologic abnormality is different, right? Stroke (laughs) versus Parkinson's disease, right? But I mean, still, I mean, if we can focus on large movements and high intensity, high repetition, which is what we've all been seeing in the literature, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think it would be neat. I think it'd be neat to see what it would be like if you could, you know, Train individuals with Parkinson's-like intervention and see what happens after a stroke, and see you know see what happens. I think it'd be cool. How could these
0: findings inform recommendations of biofeedback to help train glute max activation?
1: So, from a biofeedback perspective, I guess I would keep focused on the literature within the realms of neuroplasticity. So we well, we've already kind of talked about it a lot, but really making the tasks intense from a speed perspective. And then asking our patients maybe, you know, was that as fast as you could go? You know, that kind of thing. And see if we could use it from even a timing perspective. Let's see how fast you can do a chair rise. Okay, you've done it this fast this time. Let's see how fast you can do it again. So using outcome measures like the five times sit to stand, things like that, I think would be would be interesting to see. And you wouldn't necessarily see just glute max changes, I wouldn't think, right? Because again, it's that synergistic movement Mm -hmm. that we need of all of our muscles. So even if somebody's struggling with just a bridge, like have them bridge as quickly and and as fast as possible to see if we can fire those motor units faster and with more amplitude.
0: I'm already thinking about people that I want to try that with.
1: (laughs) I know, give it a try. I'm curious, reach back out to me let me know how it goes. Absolutely. I feel
0: (laughs) like there's a lot of clients and the and pe- people who've had strokes and other neurological conditions that have a hard time getting complete extension with a bridge.
1: And, you know, and, and it'd be interesting to see if you can get them to do it faster and see mm-hmm. if that changes anything. I think, yeah. I think, yeah. And I think after a stroke, a lot of the time, you know, there's this misnomer that, oh, we have to be fragile, but I don't know, maybe I'm just me, but not really. Let's just push, you know, push within reason, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, but push them and see if we can go as fast as we can and see how that, you know, correlates with the success that we we're hoping to see.
0: Yeah, and I think with uh, the high-intensity gate training discussions that are that are seeming to get very popular right now, it's getting more common for the, this population to really be pushed in a safe manner. So, thanks again, Doctor Sawtell, for speaking to us, and thanks to everyone for tuning into this podcast. Please continue to look out for more of the Stroke Special Interest Group podcasts on ANPT Synapse, Google Podcasts, or wherever
1: you get your podcasts.